So tonight it's going to appear that we're going backwards. We're going to start in uh, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 19. And the reason for that is because verses 19 through 30 have a close connection with the last verse of, of chapter 12. And then they lead very well into the beginning of Acts chapter 13. And that's what we'll be looking at next week. And so that's why I wanted to go back and look at these verses together. So starting in verse 19. So then those who are scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. What does that have reference to as we start out here in verse 19? Well, it has reference back to chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so Luke is, with this verse, I think, summarizing some of the things that are taking place uh, along the same time as the events of chapters 8, 9, 10, and the first part of chapter 11. And so the actual time frame that has elapsed between what we see in chapter 8 and verse 1, and then what we see in verse 25, when uh, Barnabas is going to go and look for Saul, is probably in the neighborhood of about 10 years. And so there's a very compressed summary that's taking place, but I think we'll see the reason for that as we continue through the passage. What is the response of those who are scattered by the persecution? Uh, It says that they make their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So Phoenicia would have been to the northwest of Jerusalem along the coastline. Uh, This is where the prominent cities of that region would have been Tyre and Sidon. And these would have been cities that were involved in trade. Uh, Certainly Solomon, back in the time when he was ruling and reigning, had close connection with these cities because of trade, because of uh, cedars, and because of Uh, all of the materials that were being transported back and forth. And so they've been scattered to that region. Others went to the island of Cyprus, which would have been to the west. And then still others went to the north, to Antioch, which was in uh, what would have been at that time Syria, and I believe still is today. And so they're in Antioch, and they began speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. This reflects the initial attitude of the majority of the people being scattered out from Jerusalem at the time of the persecution connected with Stephen, which is we are still taking the gospel to Jews. The church is still largely a Jewish church at that point. But what takes place over this time period? What takes place is Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans. Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles. But Peter is not the only one who's taking the gospel to the Gentiles. His is the most significant because it creates a connection between the church at Jerusalem and the work that God is doing among the Gentiles such that there is recognition this is God's work and not man's work, that the Gentiles are supposed to be a part of the early church. They're not sort of off on their own doing their own thing, which would have been the attitude that the Jews had toward the Samaritans, certainly. And so in connection with these things, verse 20, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyprus would have been that island to the west, Cyrene would have been more to the southwest, came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, it seems that some of these were those who were in Jerusalem, but had originated from those other more Gentile areas, and have now gone to the north and are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I think the reason that Luke raises this point after Peter's report is because 
He's showing that this is part of the mission that God is accomplishing, not just through Peter, but through the church as a whole. You remember at the first part of chapter 11 that we looked at two weeks ago, the initial response to Peter was that you went and you spent time with Gentiles. This is unclean. Why would you, as a God-fearing Jew, do this? Peter's response is, what God has declared clean, let no man declare unclean. God gave me a vision. These men are witnesses. God's done a work among the Gentiles. It was testified to by the presence of the Spirit through uh, speaking in tongues and other signs, and so we need to accept them as part of the church. This is going to be a recurring theme until we get to Acts chapter 15, because there's still this lingering question of, what does Christianity look like for Gentiles as part of the church that's not really resolved until we get to chapter 15, and even recurs again in the book of Galatians, but... Uh, there is this recognition that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but it is also for the Gentiles. What were some of the reasons that these men in verse 20 would have been willing to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Perhaps it was the fact that they themselves had a background that was surrounded much more by Gentiles than those who are native to Jerusalem. And perhaps it's simply the recognition that the message that God preached had ironically been largely rejected by the Jews by those who are in positions of power and authority, but had largely been accepted by those who were accounted as little by the world, those who were weak and foolish and poor. Paul will make that point later in 1 Corinthians. But there is a recognition that the gospel ought to be taken to all people. And certainly we saw that in Acts chapter 2. There were people of all sorts of ethnic backgrounds, all Jews admittedly, but all sorts of ethnic backgrounds who hear the gospel and who are converted. And how does Luke summarize what's taking place here? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And we're going to see this phrase or a parallel phrase repeated three times here and then twice more. And I think that the point that Luke is trying to make is this. The gospel is spreading still. Just like it did in Acts 2, where there's 3,000 added to the church, where the number of men had grown to be about 5,000, sometimes we might have this sense that, okay, and, and then it just sort of dwindled away and there's no more people being added to the church. But Luke makes the point in verse uh, 21 that a large number who believe turned to the Lord. There's similar language, even though the exact number is not given. There's similar language of counting heads of people, of there being many people who have been converted and who have turned for the Lord. And what does that mean, that they have turned to the Lord? Well, it simply would be this. They preach the Lord Jesus, verse 20. The message is about Jesus. It's about that we are sinners, that we needed a Savior, that God sent Jesus, and the book of Acts says that the, the Jews crucified him, the Gentiles allied with the Jews, put Jesus to death. They were all guilty in God's sight, despite the fact that their act fulfilled God's plan in bringing salvation, making salvation possible. And that the only way to God, even as Jesus himself said, is through Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And turning to the Lord is saying, I'm going to give up all of these other ways. Being a nice person, trusting in myself, uh, following some sort of religious ritual. I'm going to give up all of these things and I'm going to turn to the Lord on the basis of this message that was being preached at the end of verse 20, the Lord Jesus. 
that he is God, that he is man, that he came as a baby as we saw last week at Christmas. Uh, we celebrate at Christmas the birth of Christ, whether or not it was December 25th or some other season of the year. We celebrate the coming of Christ and the recognition that God came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, was buried, rose again, and has ascended on high. And that was the message that these were proclaiming. And people heard that message, and by the power of God, received spiritual life as they turned away from their sin and turned to God. What is the response of the church? Verse 22, it's sort of in a very brief summary form, this same question that uh, arises at the beginning of chapter 11. They reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now, it does not seem to... Um, the, the text does not necessarily indicate whether the first part of the chapter came before this summary statement or after. I would lean toward it coming after because I think that the event with Peter was the highlight and the recognition that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. And then I think there's further investigation of the gospel being preached to the Gentiles in this time period between when Peter first goes, takes the gospel to the Gentiles and when Paul is appointed as the apostle to the Gentiles and recognized as such. I think these are some of the things that are taking place in between those two things. And they send Barnabas off to Antioch to investigate. Barnabas, we've seen earlier in the book, he was the one who at the end of uh, chapter 4 was willingly uh, sharing um, his property to meet the needs of those who were without what they needed in the church at Jerusalem. He was the one who, a few chapters later, in uh, chapter 9, uh, connected Paul, the persecutor, with the apostles in Jerusalem and uh, encouraged him, as he had been nicknamed the son of encouragement. He was the one who's going to be instrumental in uh, the first missionary work of the church. He's someone who is trustworthy. And verse 24 describes him as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he was not an apostle, but he was one that could be trusted to go get an accurate assessment of what was going on at Antioch, bring a report back to Jerusalem, and to encourage the believers there if there were believers. Verse 23 says, When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. When he says he witnessed God's grace, we have to ask ourselves, what, it was, what was it that he saw that was an evidence of God's grace? And I think from the testimony of the rest of Acts and the testimony of the rest of Scripture, some of the things that he would have looked for were, were these people who had professed faith in Christ, been baptized and added to the assembly, and shown that they were genuinely following the message that they professed by the way that they lived in their daily lives. Things that we saw back in Acts 2 and 41, like devotion to the apostles' doctrine, uh, connecting with one another in fellowship, spending time in prayer. These are all marks of true belief that I think Barnabas would have been looking for, and those things would have been the basis for his assessment that the grace of God is present among these who are of who are Gentiles, not Jews, who have heard the gospel message. So what's his response? He rejoiced and he began to encourage them all. I think that this is important for us to think about because we should, 
encourage people who are showing genuine signs of faith. Sometimes we want to encourage people before we've observed genuine signs of faith, uh, and we have to be careful of that in terms of adding them to the assembly, in terms of um, sometimes people will have used Christian language. Politicians do this a lot, especially in election years. Uh, people just who've had some sort of a religious background, even if they're not following God whatsoever at this point, will be familiar with the lingo and they'll say it either because they want you to stop bothering them or because uh, it's just the way that they talk. So we have to be careful and recognize that merely someone using Christian language or saying religious sorts of things doesn't mean that they're a believer. But if there are genuine marks of belief, as I mentioned a few moments ago, what should our response be? Rejoice, encourage, and uh, push them on toward further maturity. He said he encouraged them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And this would have been particularly important in light of the ongoing persecution that was taking place during this phase of the church's history. We saw that this morning with chapter 12. Look at the end of verse 24. Look what we see again. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. We saw that at the end of verse 21. Now we see it at the end of verse 24. Now we go to verse 25. And he, that's Barnabas, left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And I don't have a map in front of you right now, but uh, Syrian Antioch would have been here, and Cilicia, where, where Paul was from, Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, would have been just up here, a little bit further around the Mediterranean Sea. And so Barnabas went to look for Paul, and it seems that it was something that took some measure of time because it says, and when he had found him, it's not as though he just went from one city to the next and he got there and Paul was immediately there because of what we know from what Paul was involved with from the book of Galatians where he sort of describes his timeline. Uh, Paul was involved in ministry throughout that region. So I don't think that Barnabas necessarily found him the first day he went and was looking for him. But why would he look for Paul? I think because he wanted someone to be a companion in ministry and he wanted to see what God had done in the life of this man that he had been instrumental in connecting with the apostles and in to a certain extent getting a start in ministry back in Acts chapter 9 and what do they do together for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch I want to highlight again that phrase for you they met with the church and taught considerable numbers same sort of language that we see at the end of verse 24 and very similar to the language that we see at the end of verse 21. So this is a common theme in this section. And the sort of the almost the aside at the end of verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It seems to be something that was an external term. Uh, originally in the book of Acts, they were described as followers of the way in contrast to followers of Judaism, of the Jewish faith. And now they are being characterized as Christians. And it seems to be something that was potentially a derogatory term or at least marking them off as that group of people over there. In other words, followers of a particular philosopher, they would have been called with a similar term of this person. Or followers of that particular uh, speaker, they would have been followers of that person. These are the Christ followers over here but something that perhaps was a term of derision initially becomes a, a name that I think many of us would willingly uh, accept for ourselves 
because we ought to be those who follow Christ. What's the significance about the teaching of Barnabas and Paul with the church? I think that there is a measure of the same sort of work that we're going to see going on in the missionary journeys in the the later part of the book of Acts, which is it wasn't enough just to start a church. The concern of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and these others who went out was that those churches would also grow in maturity. We saw that when we were studying through 1 and 2 Thessalonians earlier this year that Paul had a desire not just that people get saved, but that they continue to grow in faith, that they understand doctrine better, and even perhaps as much uh, as of much importance as that is that they actually live it out. It's not enough just to know things. We have to do things. It's not enough to remain spiritually immature. We have to grow in maturity. How do we know that they were growing in maturity to some degree? We'll look at the last few verses here, and we'll probably look at them again briefly next week. It says in verse 27, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. When it says down, it's not geographically uh, south. It's rather Jerusalem was up on a hill, and so that would be the down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Jump over to the end of chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. This is the same one that we saw in chapter 12 and verse 12. The church had gathered at least part of them in the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark. And so we see some of these important figures that we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Acts being introduced. What was the significance of what the church at Antioch did in verses 29 and 30? You had people who at one level, humanly speaking, had no allegiance or connection or loyalty to the people down in Jerusalem. Their Jews were Greeks. Why then would they sacrificially give of themselves and help those who were in Jerusalem? Why was there a need? There was a need connected with the persecution. There was a need connected with the uh, fact that people had left Jerusalem. There was a need connected with the fact that the things that had taken place in Acts 4 and 5, where the church willingly shared their property and so forth, those resources would have eventually run out. And so there was this ongoing not a cry for help, but a, definitely a, an, a description of a need. And when the church in Antioch recognized that this was going to be taking place, they were willing to do what they could do to help their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And the role of Barnabas and Saul in taking this down to the elders at the church in Jerusalem is a little bit of a foreshadowing of the important role that they would play in going around and taking the gospel to various churches and sort of an echo or an anticipation, I I guess we could say, of Paul doing a similar sort of collection, not just from the church at Antioch to Jerusalem, but from the churches throughout Asia and Macedonia back to the church at Jerusalem, which we'll see later in the book of Acts. It's a lot of little details in this passage. So what do they have to do with us? The two things that I want to highlight are 
we often have this idea in our day that the age of revivals of groups of people turning to the Lord are done. That was in Acts 2. That was in the early days of the church in America. That was at various points in history, the time of the Reformation, those sorts of things. That time sort of passed. We're going to slog on until Jesus comes back and that's it. If what Luke is saying is true, that when Jesus is preached and God's hand is with people, there can be a large number who believe and turn to the Lord, that considerable numbers are brought to the Lord, and that uh, considerable numbers can be taught in connection with the church, I would encourage all of us to recognize that the same God who saved people then is the same God who's at work among us now. And so as we go into 2019, if we faithfully proclaim the gospel and no one is added to this assembly, then we have done our job. And that may be God's purpose for our church in 2019. But if we are not faithfully proclaiming the gospel, could it potentially be because we don't believe that God can still do what he did at the end of chapter 11 and we perhaps settled into the mindset of the people that we looked at from chapter 12, which is we're going to pray for things, but we're not really sure if God's going to do them, or we're going to do things, but we're not really sure if God's going to bless it. And I say this as no criticism to all of you. This is the, the struggle of my heart and mind. We, we go through the normal routines of life. We settle into patterns and habits and expectations and we come to a passage like this, and I think it's supposed to jar our expectations, particularly today, and say, the opportunity for people to hear the gospel and to turn and follow Christ was not done 2,000 years ago. It was not done 500 years ago. It was not done 200 years ago. There is still that opportunity for people to believe and hear and turn to the Lord. And granted, we recognize the sovereignty of God. You and I don't save people. But the part that I think it should strike home to us is sometimes because we say God is the one who saves people, we say he's going to save them. Other passages say we have to take the message. So my question for you is, are you taking the message? Do you believe that the God who did this then can do this now? And do we recognize that though God could just supernaturally transform everyone in this city or this country or the world over, the way that he has chosen to work is to appoint us to take the message, and so we need to be faithful in that task. Secondly, are we content for people merely to make a profession of faith, whether that be among our own numbers, ourselves, our children, those we come in contact with, what is our expectation for spiritual maturity? Does it stop with someone starts coming up to church regularly? Does it stop with someone comes to all the services? Does it stop with whatever it might be, or is our expectation that there is a growth in maturity that is evidenced with things like what the early church did, which was to say, what is the need of another believer that I can meet? 
Or how can I further the work of God with the gospel in other places, as we'll see with Barnabas and Saul as they come back and are sent out by the church at Antioch? Are we looking for God to save people? But then once he does save people, are we looking for God to take people to take the next step, not just I'm a Christian as in I prayed a prayer and I'm right with God. It doesn't stop there. What is the next step that each of us individually needs to take as we go into the new year? What is the next step that each of us should see collectively our church taking as we go into the new year and see God work and continue to press forward in the task that God has set before us. Again, these things that we're looking at in these verses are not commands. This is a description of what happened historically. And yet I think it provides a powerful example for us because it teaches us things about God, it teaches us things about how God was working in the early church, and it teaches us things about, I think, things that could, could and should be happening in our own lives as well. And perhaps you say, I am praying for people to be saved and I am sharing the gospel. Then I would say, don't grow weary in well-doing. You say, maybe I'm not sharing the gospel and I'm not praying for people to be saved. Start doing that. Start there. You say, I am striving to grow spiritually. Keep striving with God's help because God is the one who upholds us and makes all this possible. You say, I'm not working to take the next step spiritually. Well, I mean, the parallel would be this. We... Uh, we think it's okay for a toddler to, to act and speak and all of these sorts of things. There's, there's an expectation that certain things are acceptable for a toddler. But if every one of us behaved like toddlers in terms of uh, everyone had to remind us of everything, everyone had to do everything for us, all of these sorts of things, there's something not right about that. And so spiritually speaking, we shouldn't be content to stay in the same, same spot indefinitely. Are we eager to see God work and bring people to a knowledge of Christ? Are we eager to see God work and bring those people who have trusted in Christ to maturity as shown by the work that God continues to do in their lives? And are we willing to be, like Barnabas, the person who would come alongside, rejoice, encourage, and be characterized as someone who is good, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith? I think that these are lessons from this chapter that ought to encourage us as we go into the new year. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage together, I pray that you would help us to have a burden, have a desire for people to trust in you. That we would be diligent to take your word because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? And Lord, in our own hearts and lives, help us not to be content with just maintaining even good habits but to constantly be striving to realize that we have not arrived yet. Help us to seek to follow you as we ought. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. If I could ask this as well.
I could ask just a couple of people to pray along these lines as well, to lead our congregation, and then Jonathan will come lead us in our closing hymn. So I could ask just maybe a couple of people to pray as we go into the new year that we would, by God's help, work toward these two goals. <laughs>